kind of old-fashioned cop who preferred working the streets and making arrests to taking tests to a promotion. He was the closest thing New York had to a dirty Harry. This is One Tough Podcast. Here's your host, Bo Deedle. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. I'm joined here, as always, with Carlo. Good morning. And this week, we're joined by somebody who I was watching on TV a couple of, about an hour ago. And the real famous guy's book is number one on Amazon. Holy Magoli. His name is Jocko Willink. Is that how you pronounce it? That's how you pronounce it. You nailed it. All right. That's good. Okay. Jocko has a very interesting life. He spent 20 years in the United States Navy. He was a Navy SEAL. He's a podcaster, and he's got a very good podcast. I'm very honored you're on ours. We're doing pretty well here. And uh, your new book is called? Leadership Strategy and Tactics. And it's a field manual? Yep. And what it's all about, it's big thing, Carlo. It's number one on Amazon bestseller. <laughs> so this book is, is cool. Did you get a copy for me? I go? did. I did. I, I hope it ain't reading. signed to you. It's yeah. unsigned, but uh, I started reading it. Really good stuff. Very uh, good tactics that anyone can apply in business, especially our business, any business. And uh, I look forward to finishing. You it. better finish reading it and bring some more friggin' business into our company. Okay, that's why that, we're that's around why thirty-five. Before, I'm taking 35. Jocko's advice, so we we propel well, it. Well, he did say something to me before because one of his. I watched one of your podcasts. There, everything was friggin' good, guys. Friggin' <laughs> good, good, but. I caught it at the end. First, I'm saying, wait a second. Everything's good with this guy. But then I listened at the end, and I understood what you were saying. No matter how bad it gets, you're still able to say it's good, and you can make it better. And I learned. So you taught both something, and old men (laughs) learned something too. It's all about no matter how hard it gets, you have to realize that you're still able to say it's good. And if you're dead... You ain't saying it's good. You ain't saying shit. It doesn't and matter I, anymore. And I caught that from you. Uh, now, you went to, uh, did you end up in Annapolis? Nope. I didn't go to Annapolis. I enlisted in the in the Navy right out of high school. Yeah. Yeah. College wasn't really what I was looking to do. I wanted, I didn't want books and pens. I wanted a machine gun. So <laughs> I, I, I enlisted in the Navy to try and go to the SEAL teams. And I ended up making it through the training first try. Showed up at the SEAL teams. I was... 19 years old when I got to SEAL Team 1. When did you get to OCS? So I did eight years as an enlisted guy at SEAL Team 1, and then I got picked up for this program in the Navy, which was a ridiculously good deal, called the Seaman to Admiral Program. And I just went from being a, an enlisted guy at SEAL Team 1, I went to thir- 13 weeks of officer candidate school in Pensacola, Florida, Got my commission and showed up at SEAL Team 2 as an officer. Holy schmoly. That's yep. what a way to go. Usually my friends over there in Annapolis, you know, then they go into SEAL Team after that. But you, you went from seaman to to an officer. What, yep. what what rank did you come out after you finished with that lieutenant? I retired as a lieutenant commander. Yep. Lieutenant commander. Yep. You wouldn't know my man Castiglia, would you? I don't know. Commander Castiglia? His dad was my partner. His dad passed away. Uh, Artie Castiglia. That, that uh, name sounds familiar. Artie Castiglia. Yeah, he's a he's a pretty high ranking Navy SEAL now. He's been through it, and uh, I have a lot of friends over there. And I was I was very fortunate to be uh, I think it was SEAL Team Number Three or Four over there in Norfolk. Uh huh. 
And I flew out there, my friends, I don't want to throw names, but I was good friends with Fox Fallon and Bob Natta. Bob Natta had the Atlantic fleet. Fox Fallon had the Pacific fleet. Then he also took over CENTCOM back down during the war. Yeah, I think I... I was in when Fallon was over in uh, over in the Persian Gulf at least one or two times. Yeah, and then Fallon got shitted on when he told the truth when he said about Iran. You know, we were fighting. <coughs> excuse me, we were fighting Afghanistan. We we're in Iraq, and he goes, "We can't open up another front. We don't have the ability." Right, and he said the truth, and nobody was able to handle the truth. Then they asked him to step down. He was CENTCOM, CENTCOM yeah. commander, and I was with him down in uh, Tampa, down CENTCOM headquarters. And Bill Fallon's a good friend of mine. And you know what? He's a fighter pilot and everything else. And he told the truth. And every and then politics come into play. Oh, you can't tell the truth. But by telling the truth, he probably avoided us getting into war, which a lot of Americans would have been killed. And I respect the person who's out there fighting to tell me what's going on. I don't know, like you say in your in your leadership stuff, you listen to the other people around you. Don't think that because you're their boss, you know more than them. Absolutely true. And I, I take that and I take that in context. I've been running a business from retiring from the police department for thirty five years and I listen to people. I listen to Carlo. Mm-hmm. Carlos on my uh, chief of staff in my business, and I listened to Carl. He's got great ideas, and I told him, make the ideas happen. And when you make the ideas happen, hard work equals success, and we all know that. So let's talk about you wrote eight books? Yeah, I've written eight books. Four of the books are for adults, and four of the books are for kids. Ah. I've written four kids' books. I got four kids of my own, <sighs> and if you ever – Take a look at some of the books that they try and sell to kids right now. They don't exactly, they don't exactly push the kind of values you'd actually want your kids to have. So I wrote some books that you know talk about hard work and discipline and learning and trying to put forth your best effort in whatever you do. So I wrote some books about that. Well, you know, I did listen to you again. <laughs> your, your wife must be one remarkable lady because she mentioned that oh, she was deployed when you were deployed, meaning that when you were deployed over in the Middle East, she was deployed as being the mother of these four kids, taking care of them while you were out there shooting your uh, guns. Yeah. She was controlling what's most, most important. Yeah. So when you get back, you had a foundation of kids that are respectful, honorable, and that, that to me is a remarkable thing. The kids could have wavered if she didn't have her foot on them because, you know, with peer pressure and all that crap, we go through that with the kids. Oh, well, you know, if I don't do this, I'm going to be looked at as, um, as a weirdo because everybody's doing it. And obviously the structure of the foundation in your home front was part of what you're talking about now, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. My wife did a great job. And, you know, I mean, you imagine how hard it is for I'm overseas. She has no idea what's happening with me. I'm talking to her maybe once a week. The rest of the time, she's just wondering what's hoping I'm okay. She's actually back in America going to visit my guys that are wounded in the hospital. Wow. She's back in America going to my guys' funerals that are coming home. I mean, this is it's about as hard as it could possibly get for a, for a marriage. But, you know, she was well, the same. She is. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about... You're, you're heroic because they are heroics because at any time one of those little missile bullet things could have killed you because you're getting shot upon quite 
frequently when you were in Iraq. Were you in Afghanistan also, or just no, Iraq? I, I went to Afghanistan, but I never fought. I went there a couple times on some trips, but I never fought there. Well, Fallujah, there was uh, you were at that battle. I was no, I was in uh, the Battle of Ramadi in 2006. Ramadi, okay. So yeah. if you remember 2005, 2006, so Fallujah happened. I just left in 2004. I left Iraq. Yeah. When that big push through Fallujah went through, and a lot of the the bad guys that had, the bad guys that stayed in Fallujah died. The bad guys that left to Fallujah left Fallujah. They went to a place called Ramadi. So in 2005, uh, 2006, Ramadi was was the worst place in Iraq, and that's w- when I was there. Was in 2006. Right, because a friend of mine, uh, Johnny Myers, David Myers, was a sniper, uh, uh, United States Marine Corps. He was blown up over there, and when he came home in 2000 and probably the end of 2004 he was in Fallujah there and he would tell me some 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 stories that I said what the hell were we doing that if I think if Bo was in charge I would have just let him put the bombs in there and whatever happens happens rather than expose my troops from house to house fighting and I'm sure that was Ramadi the same difference that's pretty you know when you're going house to house you know, I used to be a detective when I used to hit places that guys who just killed somebody's in there. So he has to drop on you because he's got a gun. And now you, you're going through that door, and I'm sure this has happened. What Bring us into Ramadi, what, what you were doing in Ramadi. So there was a bunch of insurgents living inside the city yeah. amongst the local populace. That's what really made it hard. It was amongst the local uh, populace. You didn't know who was good or bad. It's hard to tell who was good and bad. And the bad guys, they'd shoot at you. They'd go put their weapon down and walk out wearing civilian clothes, carrying a kid. It, that, that, that was a, one of the most wow. difficult things about it. But, yeah, so we what we ended up doing, we supported the Army and the Marine Corps that was there with us. But moving into the neighborhoods and actually setting up Police stations, we called them combat outposts, but they were basically police stations right inside this, the city of Ramadi. And we did it in as many places as we could so that, we, so that the local populace knew that they could come to us if they needed help. And eventually the local populace realized that we were there, we were going to stay. And they wanted those insurgents out of there because those insurgents were, were raping their were wives raping their and wives children. And, yeah, just and, and savages. Animals. And the thing is that, so now you're there, but I, I, I understand you don't know who was good and who was bad, and they could have the drop on you. And we've seen, you know, a lot of American soldiers dying because of the friendliness that you showed to them without being on the offensive and welcome. And the next thing you're welcoming is the guy taking a, a, a vest and blowing himself up and killing uh, GIs over there. But as far as the house to house, I mean, it must have been some big firefights. Yeah. I mean, there was massive, you know, there was massive firefights. There was a lot of casualties in the Battle of Ramadi. How many, how many Americans did we lose in that battle? So while I was in the six months that I was there with the, the, the first brigade of the first armored division just in the six months that I was there with them. Uh, we lost 61 Americans Mm. and from my task unit, we, we lost, we lost three. And that was just during the six months that I was there. The, the reserve unit that was there before us, the two, two, eight out of Pennsylvania, as a matter of fact, national guard unit, they lost 94, I think. And the one one AD, the whole time that they were there, they lost about a hundred as well. So there was incredible sacrifices that were made to take back that city. But the the good news is we did take back the city, and coalition forces did prevail. And about a year after I left, six months to a year after I left, and, and my task unit left, that place was peaceful. That place there was there was, Where was almost the no other violence. Scumbag? The other scumbags didn't pop that out yet. Well, no, ISIS. We, so what happened was 
We killed a bunch of them. The the ones that we didn't kill ran. They ran out into the hinterlands and 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 put their heads down and hid for a while. Was ISIS embedded in, in Ramadan? The, the ISIS started using the name uh, Islamic State around 2007. So it was, was the same after, people. It was the same people. But what happened was, you know, we left. America left in 2010. Mm-hmm. And when we left, there were still these embers of fire of insurgency that were around. And when we left, the fire started to grow, and then that was ISIS. And that was ISIS. They yeah. got all... They, well, they thought they got organized, and that was the the next thing that happened. They did get they did get organized, and they came into Ramadi, and they took Ramadi, and they put their their evil black flag over the government center, and we got reports from people that we knew there that families that had worked with coalition forces, they the ISIS came in and they murdered them, and they murdered about <laughs> they murdered about five hundred whole families. Wow! So that, wow, that's what wow. kind of people you're I love with. this task force unit bruiser. Uh, did you name that? I did indeed. Well, let me tell you something. Bo is called One Tough Cop. That's my little nickname, book, movie, and all that crap. But if I looked at you, I'd say this mother looks like one bruiser. Yeah. So that was a perfect name for your unit. Because if I looked at you, I'd say to Carla, that looks like a bruiser over there. <laughs> yeah. So you named the bruiser task force. Well, you know, you got they, they name your task units at a SEAL team. There's three of them at the time. Yeah. They name them by the phonetic alphabet, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie. So yeah. mine was Bravo, and I'm like, I'm not calling <laughs> no my, Bravo. I'm not calling my task you, tasking to Bravo. So I just changed the name. Yeah, of like Bruiser. oh, the Bravo guys are coming. I I rather say yeah, Jocko's Bruiser team's coming. Exactly. I like that better. The Bruisers are coming, right, Carlo? Sounds good. To that me. means that there's going to be some action, right? <laughs> so then you you made it through that, and had you been wounded at all? Nope. So you've never been wounded. No. Nope. And uh, you you lost some of your people in your command, I'm sure. Yeah, we, we lost we lost three guys. Yeah. We lost Mark Lee, who was the first SEAL killed in Iraq. We lost Mikey Mansoor, who was the second SEAL killed in Iraq, and he was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. Yes. He uh he jumped on a grenade to save three of our other teammates. Mm-hmm. And then we had another we had about a dozen guys get wounded. One of the guys that got wounded really bad was a guy named Ryan Job. He was shot in the face. He was gravely wounded. He was he was rendered blind by mm-hmm. the damage that was done, and then he made it back. But then uh, after about his 22nd surgery that he had to repair the damage that was done, there were some complications, and, and he ended up dying back here in America so, as well. Well, I'm sorry sorry for all the injuries and sorry for all the losses because people forget too quickly. And, uh, you know, the, the ultimate sacrifice is that a, a given, you know, people just forget it too, you know. And I'm very honored and proud to say I was responsible for one thing, and you can ask President Trump. Uh, when he was going to run for president, I went to see him in the Trump Tower, and I said, uh, Donald, he wasn't the president yet. I says, I got a great idea. I said, the veterans are all coming back. They go to these veterans' hospitals. They tell them to sit over there. They're treated like garbage. I said, you know what you could do, Donald? You get a VA card where they could go to any hospital and where they could get any help, whether it be mental or physical, any help, and send a freaking bill to the VA administration. Hence, you have now Veterans Choice. You could go anywhere you want. And Donald uh, this summer recognized me in front of uh, Senator Lindsey Graham. It was about 25, 30 of us there, all these billionaire guys. And he goes, Bo, 
You were responsible for the Veterans Choice Card. I said, oh, my God. I said, the President of the United States has recognized me. So with that, I really believe that I've helped and ultimately helped the veterans coming back a lot more than they were. And they should have been there a long time ago. You gave the ultimate sacrifice. People have given their lives and seen so much and protected our democracy. Hell, they should get free medical, psychological, and medical. And that's Veterans Choice now. And to be honest with you, I'm very proud that I stuck it to Mr. President Trump to do it. And it's done. So that's the one thing I got. Even though I was a uh, draft dodger, I never went into the uh, into the service. I went into the police department. Mm-hmm. But I always lo- that one gap in my whole life has been. I went to Floyd Benefield to go in the Marine Corps, and then I went in a stupid police department. My one gap in my life. Well, what was, happened with the Marine Corps? Well, they, I went into the police department right as a young 19-year-old, and the Marine Corps I never went in. It was during Vietnam time, mm-hmm. and that's my void in my life. And I, I respect that. I said, well, you know what? I didn't go in, but I think things I can do yeah. for veterans, I can give my service that way. But I always recognize veterans as the people that should be respected and be helped along. And I, I'm well, I always, I always look at uh, police officers and firefighters and first responders as the people that hold the line here on the home front. So, yeah, well, you know, that you, you all serve here at home and it, it means just as much for us to be overseas Protecting the country while you're at home protecting our families. It's a, well, a fair know, trade it, as far as I'm concerned. This is about you now. It's not about me. But <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of times I have reoccurring nightmares, too, where a guy shot at me five times and throws a gun down and says, you got me. I brass-knuckled him into the ground. But my whole point was I used to always be first through the door. So if I was in Vietnam as a Marine, I don't think we would be talking today. <laughs> like you said, good. Because if I was over there, I would have been the, the point guy, and I would have some gook would have put a, uh, put a lead bullet in my head and we wouldn't even be talking so things happen for reasons i think in life right yeah i believe you believe in that yeah Yeah. okay so 2010 you decide to retire from 20 years in the armed services you come home was it like kind of because when i retired from the police department in 1985 i broke my leg in half and my ankle and all that, I had, I, had to, I had to retire. They were going to put me on light duty on a typewriter. I said, here's my papers. I'm not on light duty. And I broke my leg and my ankle parachute with some Talheads, uh, Saudi princes. It's a whole story. But my point is that I was very confused. I just locked up a guy that killed 10 people. I was a great detective, Bo Deedle, and now I'm no more. And I put my papers in. So I got a, a bit of a depression set in because when you're out there doing, 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 I want to know when you retired from the military, did you get that little bit of a depression from leaving what you were just involved in? Yeah, you know, the biggest thing for me is always trying to figure out what your next mission is going to be. What's your next mission? Because you're right. When you're in the military, you have this awesome mission, which is protecting America and protecting democracy. And that there's no, as far as I'm concerned, there was no greater mission that I would ever want. Well, when I retired, that mission was gone. And I, I woke up and figured out. Did you, you know miss what? it a little bit? Oh, I miss it every day. I miss it to this day. You know, it's, it's, I mean, being in the SEAL teams is the best job ever, hands down. Nothing else even comes close that I've ever seen. So, of course, you're going to miss it when you retire. But I just focused on what am I going to do now? And what I ended up doing was taking the, the leadership lessons that I learned and start teaching them to other people so they can apply them in their businesses and their lives and make them, everyone more successful. Yes. Yeah, so, so now it's 2010. What happens? When do you first start realizing that you could teach people leadership from the experience that you had 
in the war, in fighting, in the military, because we know one thing. I like the idea about everybody going into the military. You teach respect, responsibility, and, and honesty, and that's what the military does teach, whatever branch it might be. That's part of the criteria. Taking that and bringing it into what you've done now with these leadership, you would say that's part and parcel? Yeah, so I was probably about six months from retiring from the SEAL teams, and yeah. I knew a guy that was the CEO of a big company, and he asked me to come and talk to his executives about combat leadership. And, you know, he's a friend of mine, so I said, yeah, I went up, talked to his executives. When I got done, he came up and said to me, I want you to come and talk to every division in my company. And I said, well, I'm retiring. And he said, well, I'll pay you. And I said, okay, that sounds we'll, good. we'll work out a deal. So... We figured that out. I started traveling around the country talking to all of his divisions. And then at one of those divisional meetings, the CEO of the parent company that owned his company said, I want you to, came up to me and said, I want you to talk to all the CEOs that I have. So I went and talked to all the CEOs that he had, and he had 45 or 50 companies. Wow. When I got done doing that, a bunch of them came up to me and said, can you come talk to my company? Can you come talk to my company? And the next thing you knew, I was doing this for a living. And then eventually, enough people were saying, oh, well, I got enough business. I reached out to one of the guys that worked for me in the Battle of Ramadi, uh, Leif Babin, who was a I friend of mine. I yeah. Know yeah, you know him. from, from He's, he's mar married to Jenna Lee. And uh, yeah. he had moved to New York. And I said, I need some backup. And he's like, outstanding. So we, we started this company, Echelon Front, and we started... What's it called? It's called Echelon Front. And so we started working with a bunch of different companies. As we worked with all these companies, people started saying, hey, do you have this stuff written down anywhere? And so we looked at each other and said, we better write this stuff down. Eventually, what we wrote down, a literary agent saw it and said, I can sell this to a publisher. And we were like, well, okay. I figured it was going to be a book we'd hand out to people for free in the back of the room yeah. after we got done talking to them. But it ended up doing really well. And, you know, Echelon Front continued to grow, and now we've written, you know, I've written two books with Leif, you know, Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership, and I've written another book for adults called Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual, and then I just wrote this book for adults called Leadership Strategy and Tactics. So That's the big one. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're all big. I mean, they've all done incredibly well, you know. Well, you're number one on the bestseller list. So yeah, that's, yeah. That's very, very, very impressive. And, and, you know, with, with all the co competition out there with all these Fugazi books, now you have a real book. And and uh, you, so once you wrote these books, now you've established yourself as being the, the literary author of – I wouldn't even say it's literary. I would say it's more of uh, – It's uh, practical. Tactical. Yeah, tactical is the word. And it can be utilized. And how you break it down can be utilized in any aspect. You don't have to be shooting at somebody. No, no. I mean, if we were just teaching about how to win machine gun fights, we'd have a very small audience. But we're not talking about just how to win machine gun fights. It works in machine gun fights, but it the leadership that we talk about is it works in any environment, in any leadership scenario, in any kind of team, in any organization. And the good thing is now that we have so much experience with Echelon Front, working with all different kinds of companies from, yeah, we work with police departments, we work with fire departments, we work with financial businesses, insurance businesses, construction companies, manufacturing companies. We work with every kind of company, and we see over and over again that the leadership principles that we talk about, they work. Wow. wow. So does it all start from leadership? I mean, Bo mentioned, you know, very important values, honesty, discipline, teamwork. But when you, as you described with the experience in Battle of Ramadi, you have literally split-second decision-making that has very, very high stakes. And you have to communicate with people that are not of your culture to try to suss out good information. So, I mean... 
those stakes are incredibly high. And if you apply that to a business scenario, you know, let's say they have to make a decision or there's a crisis, uh, is it all just, uh, does it start with those values or is there other experiential um, factors that come into play? Well, you're going you're gonna to make your decision based on the principles that we, we talk about, the laws of combat that we talk about all the time. And then really the reason that I wrote this most recent book is as I work with companies and I have a podcast where I talk about leadership all the time. People ask me questions. I get the same questions over and over and over again, right, about how do I actually apply these things. And so what I realized is some people, even though they understood the principles, it'd be like understanding that in basketball, you got to put the ball through the, through the hoop, right? Everyone can – you can understand that in, in, a, in three seconds. You can understand that concept of the game. But guess what else you actually need to know how to do? You need to know how to dribble. You need to know how to pass. You need to know how to shoot a jump shot. You need to know how to shoot a, shoot a layup. Those are techniques and strategies that you need to actually know. You can also run plays, right? This book, Leadership Strategies and Tactics, gets into the, the actual, okay, this is how you shoot a jump shot. This is how you talk to your boss when he's got a plan that you don't like. This is how you deal with an employee that's got a bad attitude. So that's what this book does. It really gets granular, granular with, the, with the leadership strategies and tactics that, that I learned over my career and put them in a book so people can open up the book, find the problem, and find the solution. That's excellent. Yeah, and Carlo is definitely reading your book now, and he's going to get some good ideas to help the old man, me, because he's my guy, and I put everything on him, and he thinks of different ways to promote business. You know, being in business 35 years is a long time, and through ups and downs and peaks and valleys, you know, sometimes you make the wrong move, or sometimes you don't prepare yourself for the future, or so sometimes you don't look of where you're bleeding from, whether it be lost of business, where you're not developing new business coming in, you sit back on your laurels, you don't get up at 4.30 in the morning like you do and work out because, you know, people are just damn lazy. What time do you go to sleep? Depends on the day. I mean, I usually try and get in bed by 11 o'clock. But there's 11? No- How the hell do you get up before? Alarm clock goes off and I get you out don't of bed. Need, you don't need more than five hours? <sighs> Some people's bodies. Yeah, no, I, I know. I feel like if I don't get that eight yeah. hours, I feel like you. Yeah, I don't. It's, it's some don't of it's genetic it? for sure because I got four. Well, you kids. and Donald Trump. Yeah, you know I know about Donald Trump, President Donald Trump. That son of a bitch sleeps four hours, and I know that <laughs> he don't drink. That's one thing. Never drank Donald Trump, President Donald Trump. But this guy can operate on four hours sleep. Yeah, there's a genetic and component yeah, to it. Something remarkable, and I think that's that's maybe not in your book, but if you could do it on four hours sleep, so those other four hours that you're snoring away, Carlo, he's working already. I'm not so, winning. So you're not winning. But I got, I got. I got four kids. You don't feel tired? My oldest daughter, I used to go to bed at 11 o'clock at night. She'd be up studying. I'd wake up at 4.30 in the morning. She'd be up studying. She's like me. Genetically, she doesn't need sleep. You don't feel like that funny my, feeling? My middle daughter, she won't get out of bed until you drag her out of bed, you know? And then my son's somewhere My son's somewhere in between. I got a little daughter that's somewhere in between as well. But I think there is a genetic component to it for sure. Yeah, but yeah, but some, some people's bodies really need that. Like, like not last night, the night before... I got, I'm thinking about things, business and all that. I got up at four o'clock, and then my uh, my uh, not the the ring thing wasn't going off, so I decide to call up the helpline. And uh, some Big guy, mistake. yeah, some guy from uh, New Delhi goes, oh, "Yes, sir, I will help you." And then he connects me, with one, and I'm on it. And then they have me delete the icon. And now I'm at four o'clock, four to five o'clock. I deleted the icon. I finally call back. I says. 
Connect me to someone from the United States. I don't want to talk. I like eating hamburgers. The cow is not sacred to me. And I want an American. Sure enough, they got an American on there, and they got the icon. By. But I was up, and I didn't sleep then, so I only really had about three to four hours sleep. I was like mishmash. As I, today, last night I went to bed early. I went to bed by 10. I actually slept eight hours. I feel much better. So sometimes bodies need that. That what do you think, Carla? It's really on your circadian rhythms. But as Bo just mentioned, you know he wanted to speak to American representative. Your company is based in America, makes good products. When did you get the idea to, to start this manufacturing business and use American labor, American materials? Origin Maine is yeah. it called? Origin Maine. So this is products. Now, what what do, what products do you have? We make. We started out making jujitsu geese because I, I do Brazilian jujitsu. You know, which is, if you ever watch the UFC, that's yeah. what everyone has to have, some basic understanding of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And part of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you wear a uniform. And so I always promote Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I tell everyone to do it. And people would ask me, what kind of a gi should I get? And I'd say, get an origin gi. I wasn't, I wasn't part of origin gi at the time. I wasn't part of origin. And I kept saying it, telling everyone, get an origin gi. Why? Because they're made in America. It was the only company that was making these things in America. And finally, one day I was... I was talking to a bunch of people, and, and I said, hey, if anybody knows the guy that runs Origin Maine, this guy named Pete Roberts, tell him I want to talk to him. Because they had put out this little video of this guy, Pete Roberts. He lives way up in Farmington, Maine, and he wanted to make geese. And he was trying to find out where to get the material to make geese. And guess what? You cannot get it in America. You can't do it. So he finally said, you know what? I'm going to weave the material myself. Knock it off like the Chinese knock off everything about So he goes to an abandoned mill in Lewiston, Maine, an abandoned factory. I, I personally like Maine. Oh, yeah. I love the state of Maine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. it's beautiful. There's one loom left. All the rest of the looms that used to be there, this is a 500,000 square foot factory. All the looms that used to be there are gone. There's one loom left. Him and his friends, they drag this thing out. They bring it back. They find an old timer that can take this thing apart, gets it working, starts weaving material, starts making geese in America. So I meet him at this point and say, you know, hey, how can I help you? How can I be a part of this? What, what I had, he had manufacturing. What I had was I had, you know, I have a podcast that is, is very popular and social media that's popular. So I had a way to get the word out about Origin Maine. And so we joined forces and now we're making everything. We're making jeans. We're making boots. We're making drinks. We're making supplements. Jocko Go. Yeah. See, this is for when you don't get enough sleep. You have, you have one of those. That's like sleep in a can. It's going to make you feel good. Go ahead. Help yourself, man. Oh, <laughs> Let's order a couple of cases, right? <laughs> we'll get wanna, you some I cases. I want to start giving it to people in the office we'll so they the wake up. Office. They'll be, <laughs> yeah, they'll be on, the, on, on, on the on the. But, you know, a couple of years ago, when we got together, I think it was three years ago, I think we had eight people working at Origin. We got 70, 75 people up there in the factory making American. You're now, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Right. We're American-made products, and we're rebuilding that industry, which had left. So it's outstanding. You know, if you could say... You know, you, I know you have a criteria. I watched it this morning. Different bullet points about leadership and all that. If you could go to one area that you would say is the most important area of leadership, what would you say? Really, look, there's a lot of different things you got to do to be a good leader. But if you're not humble, you're not going to listen to anybody. You're not going to listen to your subordinates. You're not going to listen to your peers. If you come up with a bad idea... You're just going to say, well, it's my idea. We're going to keep going with it. 
You got to be humble as a leader, humble enough to admit when you're wrong, humble enough to listen to other people, humble enough to respect your enemy or your competitors. You have to stay humble as a leader. That's got to be the number one thing. So humility. Yes. So if you do something wrong, you own it. Absolutely. You own it. You own it. And then again, I saw your clip this morning, only this morning prior to seeing you on Fox, and I saw your clip good. And I was, I was like making fun of it at first, to be honest with you. I, I called Carlo. I said, everything's good with this guy. And then I re-looked at it. But then again, I, inst- I, I put myself into my own things that are happening right now, not all positive. And I realized what you were saying, and I adopted it in my mind, that regardless of anything, whether it be financial, business, whatever, it's good because you can always fix it. And he's still there. Where if you're not there, it ain't good. <laughs> and I, I, I get it. I get and it. it and Carlo, I, I get it now. And uh, I think it's something that if everyone adopts all their problems and their depressions about business, relationships, whatever, read this book. And then what you'll do is you'll find out good means that you can change something. If there ain't good, that means they ain't you. Is that how it goes? Yep. I mean, even when bad things happen, I always look at everything that happens to me as an opportunity. There's a, that's what I'm going to do. Take for the listeners, the for the listeners, there's a YouTube video uh, about Mr. Jocko over here, and it's called Good. And I recommend everyone to watch it because it's quite unique. And at the end of it, you could realize you put yourself in whatever problems that you're facing, if you have any. I'm sure everyone has some problem. It changes it when you look upon it as good. And I learned that from you, Jack. And I'm 69 years old, and I learned good today. Well, you're humble enough to still be learning. That's, what, that's a positive <laughs> sign. <laughs> Real quick on, the, uh, on this thing, I have to ask you about the question about this, this uh, towel head. Can I say towel head anymore? Uh, I, th- I think that's not PC. It's not politically correct? Well, I'll say it anyway. Towel head... Uh, uh, Soleimani there that uh, got blown up with one of those Hellfire missiles. What's your feelings about him? Was he sniffing around with his crew of Iranians when you guys were over there, Ramadi, in the back fringes? Because I know from my own talking to guys that these Iranians had their infiltrators there for a long, long time. Were they around when you were there? They they absolutely were. They weren't really in Ramadi a lot. They were more in Baghdad. Ramadi is a heavily Sunni area, and the Iranians are not, so they they stayed more in eastern Iraq, but they were absolutely there, and Soleimani is responsible for the deaths of hundreds and hundreds of American service members. He would target them specifically to kill Americans. And they made special weapons that they manufactured called EFP IEDs that would penetrate through armor and and specifically these were produced by these Iranian yes, scumbags. Were. Yep. So by us taking this piece of garbage out, you obviously support fully what the President Trump did. Yeah, I think it was a I think it was a, a, a very strong move and it was a risky move. It was a risky move to do because people were scared because we didn't know how Iran was gonna react. What what is Iran gonna do? What what can Iran do? Well, Guess what Iran did? They launched some missiles into the desert, and they said, that's all we're going to do, no, they, and they, we're not going to do anything else. My job, they did one more thing. 
They took an airline down with innocent people. Yeah. And then these idiots in the political front here in the United States are blaming Trump for taking this plane down. I mean, how idiotic when you listen to these politicians. Do you ever think of going into the political arena? I think you would end up punching people out because uh, I think you would just get enough of it and say, no, now it's, it's you and I. It ain't politics anymore. I'll never forget the great president, Ronald Reagan, who I sat with in the Oval Office. He said to me, Bo, when you become a congressman, will you take care of some of these guys on the other side of the aisle? And there's a video of me and Ronald Reagan. You could Google it anytime you want. And I said, well, Mr. President, I become your congressman. I'll go over the other side and I'll do what I have to do. Because I could see one of these liberal bastards saying, Mr. Congressman from New York, you be seated. Or go over to him and say, why don't you sit me? And I could see you doing that too. Bruiser Jocko. That's your new name, Bruiser well, Jocko. hopefully I don't ever have to go into politics. I don't think it's my scene. <laughs> well... I know you got you got some really heavy duty things you got to do. We'll wrap it up. All right. Oh. So we have our one segment we do every week, uh, Punk of the Week. Bo, uh, well, hold on. Let me okay. give a little. First of all, personally, before we wrap it up, I want to thank you so much. I, got, I ain't got too many heroes in my life, but you've become a fast hero of mine for Bo Deedle. Uh, I and, promise you, I'm no hero. And you're a hero in the sense that. You've been helping people. See, heroes don't mean you have to shoot people, take people out. Heroes are that you help people, and you help people with your book, and I recommend everyone get it, and you can utilize it. You can read it to your kids. You can let people understand. So that's the sense of hero. Hero doesn't mean gunning people down and being there catching bullets. Hero means helping people, and that's what you are. So you are a hero in two different fronts, military, yes, but also in life. You are Bo's new hero, and you're on the hero list of Bo Deedle. And I mean that. I really thank you for coming on, Chuck. And I hope we continue our relationship. And if I can help you in any way and vice versa, I can maybe recommend what you guys do to some major corporations, to which I would. Now, Carlo, I'm sorry. All right. So the punk of the week is a person, thing, idea, something that's bothering you this week. You can, it could be anything. Oh, this is this is coming from me. Yeah, you have to give us what has bothered you this week. Most of all, could be a person, place, a thing, or something that's going on. Uh, I mean, I, I guess when I hear a lot of the media, like you're talking about, defending or the politicians and the media that are are defending Soleimani as if he was some great leader in in Iran, and the fact of the matter is, he's an enemy of the Iranian people as well. He's a he's part of a tyrannical regime. They kill their own. They kill their own civilians. They've killed fifteen hundred of them or a thousand of them in, in, the, in the past several months at these protests against the regime. So when I hear people defending that guy, uh, I think those people are punks. Cool. What's yours, Gallo? Uh, my punk is uh, I was watching the Democratic debates. Uh, there was a little exchange at the end between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Jimmy Cochise. I think it was Pocahontas. Oh, whatever. Uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, uh, she said, you know, you call me a liar. And uh, this clown, Tom Steyer, tries to get in the middle of it and just say hello to Bernie. And he just gets totally clowned. This guy, I don't even know what he's doing in the race. He's, he should just quit while he's ahead. He well, looks like a big my, my punk of the week is someone I know for a while. He's a congressman from this area. He's about four foot tall, four foot wide. 
and he's part of the judicial uh, impeachment process. What's his name, Carlo? Uh, Nadler? Yeah, Jerry Nadler, this fat little punk. You are my punk of the week. You roly-poly bastard. You go after this president. You couldn't shine his shoes. He's done more in the last two years than you've done in 40 years being in the United States Congress. Go back to Cat's Deli, eat a big pastrami sandwich, and get the hell out of here. Nadler, you are a punk 20 30 years ago, you're a punk today, roly-poly boy. Why don't you do some push-ups, you fat bastard? That's my punk of the week. I think that's very strongly worded. Okay. And uh, again, how do, how do we get in touch with you, Jocko? Uh, I'm on social media, at Jocko Willink. That's where you can find me. All right, we put a link up to the book, uh, Leadership, Strategy, and Tactics. We recommend everyone check it out. Uh, Not check it out. Buy the friggin' thing. Say it right out. It's a great gift to give to somebody. If you have children, it's a great gift. If you're a a, a corporate guy, you can have him or some of his guys come over and speak to your groups and buy some friggin' books. Buy some books and also some energy drinks. Yeah, well, we're getting some of this stuff. Let's let's order some cases. Jocko, go recommend it. So when you're feeling tired with those four hours sleep, take one of these cans down and you'll be ready to hit that heavy bag. <laughs> All right, Jocko. While we got you, you're a big jujitsu guy. Uh, we have a big UFC coming up. Conor McGregor returns to fight Cerrone. You have any pick? Any Look, horse in that? You race? guys want to talk about some interesting topics? Some some controversial topics. I'm familiar with both those guys, friends with some of their coaches, and I'm not saying a damn word about those two guys who's going to win that fight. All, All right. I know is one thing. It's going to be I've a great been, fight. I've been following UFC and what you talk about jiu-jitsu, and it's just funny when you used to have Shamrock and all these guys, you know, they were big punches and all that. But the funny part about it is when those Gracie brothers used to get in there, they would get punched, but they just hang on there like a, and then they would sliver until they got you in a position where they got you and you would submit. We'll get your arm or leg broke. That's good shit. As far as I'm concerned, it's smarts over brawn, right? That's, that's jujitsu. That's jujitsu. And I do like hitting the heavy bag. Heavy bag, Carlo, I got to find a place near the office. I got to start hitting the heavy bag because after the other night when I was in Burger Fight with this immigrant German guy that was looking at me, telling me I was burping, and I got up and I just said to myself, you know what? I want to hit the heavy bag to let me know I've still got that right hook and it left up a cut. And a heavy bag's good for you. That's why you don't hurt nobody, you hurt the bag, right? I like it. <laughs> thank you so much, Jack. A real pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. And again, appreciate it. Thank you for serving our country, and thank you more so for helping the people of America with what you're presenting to us today. Appreciate and I it. recommend everyone to buy that book. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Jocko. Uh, you can find us. We're One Tough Podcast on Twitter. Bo is at Bo Deedle on Twitter and the real Bo Deedle on Instagram. You can email any questions you got for us, any guest suggestions, anything you like. One Tough Podcast at gmail.com. We promise you we'll keep the good guests coming. So stay tuned. we got a great 2020 planned. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.